It is a blessing to be with y'all. It's a blessing to be able to share. Oh, I'm supposed to dismiss the children, the children's church at this time. Uh, the kids are in a panic. He's going into the sermon. Don't do it. <laughs> Actually, some of the parents were in a panic. He's going into, no, I'm just kidding. It is a blessing to be able to worship with y'all. I don't know if y'all noticed, but it looks like some of our technology problems are better this week. You didn't have ProPresenter continually reappearing on the screen. Uh, it is great to have the internet back up and running, and uh, hopefully it will continue to do that. Uh, I know that sometimes we can do everything we're supposed to do, and things still just don't work out the way we want them to. Uh, but it looks like we're off to a good start this morning. So uh, thank you so much for being a part of our service this morning. How many of you have somebody who has been a part of your life for a season only to see that season come to an end, yet you still feel that same connection with them? Maybe it was your best friend when you were growing up, or maybe it was your cousins that you always hung out with over the weekends, or maybe it was someone who you met after the growing up years. Maybe it was someone who was there for you during a moment of crisis or just people who have shared the journey with you. I know that for me, it's these adult connections that often stick out. I think of people who were there for me during moments of crisis. I also think of people who have served alongside me in ministry. Those would include fellow pastors, as well as people in the church. I've often joked that if you want me to love you, all you have to do is to love my family. Well, I've been very fortunate that everywhere I've been, I've been surrounded by people who really do love my family. People ask me often what I miss most about the places where I have previously served, and it's always the same answer. I miss the people. For example, the last place where I lived was in the Philadelphia area. That area is marked by high crime, the rising cost of living, and a much, much faster pace of life. I truthfully don't miss any of that. <laughs> I also don't miss looking at the oil refineries every day on my ride to work. But I absolutely miss the people who were a part of our ministry up there. And that's not a reflection of the people here either. In fact, I love the people here just as much as I did the people up there. It is simply a realization that when you've shared life with other people, life is different without them, especially when you've personally witnessed the characteristics, the character traits that are mentioned in today's passage. If you would, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're having trouble, it's fine. It's the one right before 2 Thessalonians. <laughs> These are the words of the Apostle Paul as he celebrates and he encourages the church. And you know what? I think that the church could use a little celebration and encouragement this morning. As most of you are aware, we hosted our annual missions conference last weekend. The purpose of this conference was to bring awareness to solicit prayer, and to help raise funds for missionaries serving around the world. Our missions calendar runs from October 1st through September 30th each year. So part of what we were trying to do was to finish out the current year well while also preparing for next year's missionary support. Our annual goal for last year and for the upcoming year is 31,000 for each of those respective years. 
Going into last Sunday, we were a little more than $4,000 away from reaching our target for the current year. Let me take a moment and say thank you for your generosity toward missions, including some money that has come in since last Sunday. We have met our missionary goal for the current year. Thank you. And you, you know what that really means? That means we get to start early on next year's goal. Uh, actually, what it really means is there are missionaries that can count on the support of Trinity Wesleyan Church. And we should celebrate that. We should be grateful for the fact that God provided and that he provided through his people. You know, the theme of the church here for several years has been, we want to be a church that is making disciples who will make a difference. Through your generosity, you are making a difference around the world. So let me begin just with a great job. I want to read our passage to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to look at just two verses, verses 2 and 3. This is what it says. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I asked you earlier about those people whom you have a great connection with. Let me ask a little bit different question. Have you also had those people in your past that when someone brings up their name, the first thing you think is, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about, and it's not in a good way. Typically in these cases, you remember something quirky or maybe even negative about them. Maybe you remember how they made you feel or something unkind or irresponsible that they did. I wonder today, what do people remember about you? What kind of impact will you have had on their lives when your life is over? What kind of lasting impact are you making today? Maybe this is a bit oversimplified, but I've always seen myself as either being an entertainer or a world changer. I want people to know that I love life, but more than that, I want to make a difference with what I have. So again, what kind of lasting impact is your life making? Paul begins with a statement of celebration. He notes that he thanks God for the Thessalonian church every time he prays. Paul has seen some great people in his years of ministry. He got to work with the disciples, Peter and John and Andrew and Philip and all these other great guys. He got to work with the Philippian jailer. He got to work with Timothy and Titus. And there were even several women that are mentioned throughout the scriptures of great influence. But he is constantly mentioning the Thessalonian church in his prayers. What does that say about the character and the impact of the people there? Now, to fully understand why he was so grateful to the church in Thessalonica, we need to look back at Paul's first encounter with the Thessalonians. It's found in Acts 17. I know that I, I just had you look up 1 Thessalonians, but I'm going to ask you, if you would, to move real quick to Acts chapter 17. We see his first encounter with the church at Thessalonica. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1, says this, 
When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on, the, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. So we're going to stop there for a moment. I want you to recognize, first of all, Paul only spent about three weeks in Thessalonica. We know that he reasoned three Sabbath days in a row in the synagogue. So on the Saturday, because that's when their Sabbath would have been, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue and he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. So this was a short-lived experienced in Thessalonica, but it was a fruitful time. According to what we read there, there were many who believed there were some who were Jews, there were some who were Gentiles, and even some prominent women, but not everybody liked it. Later in that same chapter, in verse 13, we see that after Paul has moved on to Berea, because basically he's being run out of town, some of those who opposed Paul in Thessalonica showed up to try to stop Paul there too. And what that really means is that there was likely great opposition to those who trusted Christ in Thessalonica. So for them to take a stand and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I support this message that Paul has given, it probably was not an easy stance to take. Perhaps it was the fact that these new believers were so faithful in the face of opposition that caused Paul to have a special appreciation for them. What happened was they developed what I will call a legacy worth leaving. Verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians, getting back to our original passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us three characteristics that stood out in this New Testament church. Let me suggest that such characteristics ought to be evident in today's church as well. The first is their work of faith. These were diverse people. According to the passage, again, in Acts 17, there were Jews, Gentiles, and some prominent women. By the way, women did not typically have a significant role in their culture, so that's why they are mentioned specifically. These are individuals of influence. Yet they all had one thing in common. Very different people, but one thing in common. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And this was a faith that meant something to them. It wasn't just something that they talked about. It impacted everything about them. And I wonder today, where are the examples of faith in our church? Who will be the people that you'll call on to pray during times of crisis where you know it's more than just something that they say, but it's who they are. Who will be the ones that others will count on knowing that these are the people who are in tune with the Holy Spirit's power? Will it be you? 
I know this church has an incredible heritage of individuals who have set a godly example for us. I think of Martha Evett or Marie Evett. I think of Dr. Malcolm Ellis. I think of Pat Wanamaker. I think of Winnie Malasa. There are all these different individuals whom we would look at and say, those were incredible men and women of God. Those were people that you could count on. They were going to pray for you because they had a faith that was real. It was powerful. Will the world look to us? Will the church look to us as individuals, as the people who demonstrate great faith? It's great to be able to talk about people in the past who had great faith. What about in the present? Will it be you? The interesting thing for many of us, for many who have this work of faith, is that we also have the second characteristic that Paul mentions in this passage. He talked about their labor of love. What he's talking about here is more than a willingness to serve, but rather a desire to serve. Do you understand the difference? A willingness says, I'll do it because I'm obligated to, because someone has to do it. A desire is one that says, I want to do this. I don't need somebody to ask me to do it. I just want to do it because, well, you know what? This is really important to me. They weren't serving because they had to, because they had developed a love for God and mankind. What makes this stand out so much is the fact that such love should not have been easy for them. Remember that from the beginning, this particular church is made up of a blend of Jews and Gentiles. They thought they weren't supposed to get along with each other. But not only did they get along, they loved each other. I wonder who or what do we love? Do we genuinely love the people in our church? Do we love the people in our community that need to know Jesus? What about the college students or our local police department? What about the people of different ethnicities? Do we love the ministry that is trying to bring healing to broken people in this community? Or is it just something that we tolerate? This is a labor of love. I was asked recently about my youngest son, Michael, playing travel baseball. He's not in here, so I'll say it. He's actually really good. He hits the ball probably as far as anybody else on our rec league team. He's probably got the strongest arm on the team. And during this COVID stuff, they're uh, there weren't any rec leagues that were happening. So what was happening is a lot of the parents were trying to find travel leagues for their kids to be able to play in. My issue with travel ball, though, is the incredible, significant time that is required to do it. Kids practice two or three nights per week, and there's a tournament almost every weekend. We could probably skip the ones that involve a Sunday, but there is a significant time requirement. It's not an anti-travel ball thought here. Instead, as I thought about this, I wondered how many people would sign up for such a time commitment if it were a ministry of the church. I'm talking about the families who they have kids and they're saying, you know what, I want my kid to play, so I'm going to make sure that my kids have practice two to three nights a week. And then every weekend, I'm going to make this a priority. It's not one of those optional things. I'm going to be there. If we decided we were going to do a discipleship program at the church, how many of us are saying, you know what, Pastor, I'll be there three nights a week because I'm committed to this. I want to make sure that this is done well. I, 
I am so in love with the ministry of the church. I'm so in love with the people in this church and the people in this community. I will make this a priority. Every weekend, I will be a part of it. I wonder if this is as much a labor of love for us as sports are for many other people. I'm not against travel ball. Don't get me wrong. My issue is if we offered the same thing here, would we be as excited about it? The final characteristic that we see Paul mention is a steadfast hope. The easiest way to understand this is to see that while they loved people and they loved this ministry, they always kept things in an eternal perspective. In other words, they constantly were looking ahead to the day of Christ's return. Well, what about you? Do you still look forward to the day of Christ's return? Is there still this incredible hope that drives us? To best answer that question, I want to go back to something that we talked about last week. As a part of the missions conference, we talked about a familiar sending passage, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I'm not sure if I'd ever really looked at it in its entire uh, proper context. I want to read it to you this morning, and then I'll share a few thoughts that will hopefully challenge you. But before I do that... Let me just point out that everything I've done today is intended to say good job. I think, honestly, this is a healthy church. It is a good church. Man, there are some great things that are happening. I would suggest to you that a part of why we're able to celebrate the missionary giving is because we are a church that understands that everything we have belongs to God. I am so grateful today for you as a church, but I also want more for you and for me. So look real quick, Acts 1, verse 6 through 8, it says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It is that last verse, verse 8, that is often used as we send out missionaries. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, or to the uttermost. So what's happening here? First, we know that this is just after the crucifixion and the resurrection. The first few verses indicate that Jesus has shown up on multiple occasions, verses 1 through 5, in his resurrected body. There was likely a sense of excitement that would come with that, but there also was a sense of unrest. Remember that the crucifixion was not far in the past. In verse 6, the disciples ask a question of the resurrected Christ. Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel. This question reveals much. On the one hand, it identifies a hope which they shared. Now, there's an eternal possibility with this question, as well as a temporary possibility. Were they looking for the eternal kingdom of heaven? Is that the hope? We're talking about a steadfast hope here. Did they have this hope together saying, we want to know when is this day coming? When are you reestablishing your kingdom? When are you going to make everything right? Were they looking for the eternal? Or were they looking simply for Israel 
to be delivered from the oppression of Rome. We've often said that perhaps Judas did not truly want to betray Christ so much as he wanted to force his hand so that Jesus could take a stand against the Romans. Maybe they wanted both. Either way, we see that there was a hope for something better, and they knew that Jesus Christ was the only one who could grant it. On the other hand, we see that a part of what makes them hope for something in the future is the fact that the present really wasn't that good. They were surrounded by sin and division and violence and fear and doubt and the feeling of disrespect and hatred from others. In essence, it was not a good time for those who followed Christ. So they ask this question, and they're hoping for a quick out. They want Jesus to simply hit the reset button and make everything right again. But Jesus has a different plan. In verse 7, with my paraphrase here, he says, you're asking the wrong question. It's not for you to know when the Father plans to make this happen. You're asking the wrong question. They want to know how quickly they can get out of this broken world. But Jesus has a different idea. And this is where we get to verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's his plan. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be the witnesses. This is not a random act where we're going to send out missionaries. This is in response to the brokenness of our world. We as the church, this was God's plan all along in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the uttermost. Now connect the dots here. The disciples went out of the broken world, but Jesus wants to empower them to fix the broken world. He wants them to change the broken world. In recent days, the world of the disciples seems eerily familiar. Today, we are surrounded by sin division, violence, fear, and doubt, and the feeling of disrespect and hatred from others. As much as I'd love to point to those outside the church, I would hate to admit it, but sometimes that appears in the church as well. The result is that we fuss over social injustice, which lives matter, COVID-19 conspiracies, political leanings, and anything else you can think of. And in each case, we display the unfortunate reality that at times we have become no different than those outside the body of Christ. The result is that I, and maybe others as well, catch myself praying that God would put an end to the brokenness in our world. I think of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I wonder how much longer it will be before God says, enough. But instead, God patiently waits. And instead of putting an end to the brokenness, instead of hitting the reset button, he calls and equips by the Holy Spirit us to change our broken world. I don't know if you saw what we did there, but we just got back to the idea that we ought to be world changers. I told you at the very beginning, I see myself, I should either be an entertainer or a world changer. Well, I want to be a world changer, and that's what God's called each of us to. Now, the problem for many of us is that we expect the power of the Holy Spirit to show up in one particular way. Yet the Holy Spirit's power shows up in many ways in the Scriptures. 
For example, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's power is on display as Peter speaks boldly to a crowd of sinners, but the Holy Spirit's presence is not just evidenced by what is said. The Holy Spirit's power is displayed over and over again by what is done. On that day, there were tongues of fire that rested upon each of the believers with the sound of a mighty rushing wind drawing the attention of those nearby. In the days that followed, they would see incredible miracles as the sick would be healed, the dead would be raised to life, prisoners would be set free, the spirit would be given to believers, and all sorts of other works would take place. And to add to this the fact that a sense of community and love quickly developed among the believers as they shared a sense of commonality and grace, meeting the needs of their brothers and sisters. Sure, there were still moments of disagreement. I told you earlier you had Jews and Gentiles. Uh, we see in the, the book of, uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, where there were disagreements over the speakers. Uh, do I follow Apollos or Paul or Peter? But they still recognized that they were now a part of one family with one God over them, with one Savior who died for them, and one Holy Spirit that now dwelt in them, empowering them to again do what? To change the world. The point is that the Holy Spirit's power wasn't just evidence in the things that were said, but in the things that were done, both miraculous and compassionate. And that is what must happen in today's church. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we must push even more to display faith, hope, and love in all that we do. If we see brokenness, reach out and touch it. If you see someone in poverty, help provide a way out. If you see your brother or sister weeping, wrap your arms around them and love them like you never have before. If you see injustice, don't just tell somebody else about it. Go do something about it. Let me challenge you with this. We've talked about the need for faith, hope, and love in the body of Christ. A faith, hope, and love that is more than we talk about, but it's something that we do something about. So let me challenge you with this. What have you done over the past seven days to serve as a change agent for the Holy Spirit? I want to encourage you to take a moment and examine the impact that you're making. You remember I asked earlier about the legacy that you're leaving? What kind of impact will you leave for the people behind you? I want to challenge you that by this time next week that you have an answer, not because I'm going to ask you in front of everybody else, but I believe that God wants us to be able to give an account for what we've done. What kind of difference is your life making? Are you pouring into other people? Are you reaching into the broken lives and touching individuals who are hurt? Do you see needs around you and you're actually a part of the solution rather than just a part of the conversation? God is calling us to be a church that will make a difference. I believe today that we're already making a difference. We celebrated that at the beginning, but I believe God has so much more for us. Will you be willing to be a part of truly changing our world? If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, oh, we recognize that there is a world of hurt all around us. There are people that 
They're blinded by hatred. There are people that are blinded by sorrow and pain. Lord, I pray today that you would allow us to reach into their lives and to show them that there is a hope and there is something to look forward to. There is something worth living for, and it is you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love the people that you've placed in our lives, to truly make a difference for them. Help us, not only for this current generation, but for the generations that will follow. Father, I pray that our children and our grandchildren will see in us something worth repeating. May they see an incredible faith that is not just content talking about religion, but a faith that truly does determine who we will be. May they see in us a love that reaches beyond the people that are just like us, but instead we see each individual as creations of an almighty God. May they see in us a hope that says this world is not all that we have. Father, I pray that you'd enable us to leave a legacy worth leaving. May the people of our society today and tomorrow know that our faith, our hope, and our love are real. Father, I pray that you'd work in us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a privilege to be able to worship with you. We're going to be looking over the next several weeks uh, through First and Second Thessalonians as we go through a new series. And we're talking about truly a model of excellence. And uh, today is on the church. And actually, the next one will still deal a little bit with the church. But I want you to understand today that you are already on the right track. I love the fact that I can say that to this church. I've been a part of many churches. I don't know if I've ever seen a church that is, is as excited about what God is doing, and I look forward to seeing how God will work in this church and specifically through each of you. Thank you for being with us this morning. I think I went a little bit over today. I apologize. Go in peace. <laughs>